reading from Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came again to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly great, three days' journey in breadth. And so Jonah went into the city one day's journey and cried out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of those to the least of those. And the word came even to the king of Nineveh, and he arose and got off his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. And he sent out a proclamation and published it in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let no man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not have bread or drink. And let them be clothed, man and beast, in sackcloth. And cry out to God. Let them turn from their evil ways and the violence of their hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn, turning from his fierce anger that we may not perish. And God, when he saw all that they had done, how they turned from their evil ways, relented of the disaster which he had said he would do. He did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How does a life get transformed? How does a life get transformed? Jonah chapter 3 is one of the greatest pictures in Scripture of transformation, of a change. Verses 1 to 2, we again hear Jonah the prophet being called on mission as we are called on mission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. In verse 3, we find Jonah finally, no longer the reluctant prophet, or let us say, less reluctant, says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah is now on mission as intended. In verse 4, he preaches to the people of Nineveh. We'll unpack that more in a moment. And in verse 5, we see the people of Nineveh have an all-out revival. Repentance falls on this entire great city. A major transformation has taken place. You see, how does a life get transformed? The Bible would say a life gets transformed because of repentance. A life gets transformed when a person repents and comes to the Lord. Repentance is the heart of a biblical understanding of what this world desperately needs, what I continually desperately need, what you continually desperately need, a transformed life because of repentance. But what is repentance, right? What, what does that mean? It's a word that can bring about a whole lot of different connotations in our culture. What is repentance? I mean, I feel sometimes like I should repent for all the things I say to hockey referees during a Stars game. No, actually, that's not true. I don't feel like that at all. 
But in the Bible, repentance is more than just saying you're sorry or feeling regrets. You see, we can all think of examples in our lives of people who constantly say they're sorry, but we don't see any change in their behavior. We don't see any change in their life. Sorry, 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 regret, 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 all the same direction of their lives. Repentance is different than just saying sorry or regretting something. Repentance in scripture is actually changing of directions. We, we did that just a moment ago. We prayed that in our opening confession prayer. Notice as we confess before God in that opening prayer, we don't just say we're sorry. We don't just ask for forgiveness, but we ask for a changed life. We said, not only we are truly sorry and we humbly repent, there's that word, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, but then this is the change that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. The point of a repentant heart is a transformation, a change, a new direction. A number of years ago, I was sitting with a priest sharing about a particular pattern of sin in my life that I just couldn't seem to get past. And this priest was famous for never giving advice. He would simply tell you a story or tell you a little parable, and he said this to me. Now, it took me a couple weeks to fully comprehend it. I thought, after I heard it, that this was stupid. You all, I'm sure, will understand it immediately. But when it came to me, I said, wow. So he told the story. He said, there's a man who walks down a street, and he comes to an open manhole, and he decides that he's gonna walk around the open manhole to the left but finds himself falling into the manhole. The next day, the man walks down the street, comes again to the open manhole, decides he'll walk around the right side of the manhole, and again finds himself falling into the manhole. On the third day, the man walks down the street, comes to the open manhole, decides to jump over the manhole, again finds himself falling into the manhole. On the fourth day, the man took a different street. This is a picture of biblical repentance, a call to go a different way, regretting our sin, feeling sorry for our sin, asking for forgiveness for our sins, but desiring to change our way. Jonah chapter three is an incredible picture of repentance. If we are to understand how a life can get transformed, we have to look at repentance. We have to look at Jonah chapter three. See, Jonah gives a small message. Remember I mentioned a moment ago, it's this small message, verse four. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's just five words. It's a tiny, tiny little sermon. It's a little bit like the George Burns school of preaching. George Burns, who once said, the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and have the two as close together as possible. I'm not of the George Burns school of preaching. But Jonah was, Jonah, five words. Just five words in Hebrew are spoken. And this incredible repentance, this incredible transformation takes place. How? Well, it's the message. 
It's those five words. Remember, it said back in chapter two, chapter three, sorry, verse two, God says to him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, the message that I will tell you. You see, Jonah does not come with his own ideas. He doesn't come with his own message. He comes with a message that God gives him. These five words, assuming Jonah was faithful, these five words are the five words that God gave Jonah. This is the message. This is God's message. And if he brings God's message, this message will bring about for the Ninevites incredible repentance and incredible transformation. You see, Jonah does nothing else, doesn't he? There's no further explanation. There's no mighty deeds of miracles done here. He simply says these five words, and this community is changed. You see, in the short message, in just verse four, those five words, we find this message that leads to repentance. And this is what we need. Our world needs it, and you and I need it. We need to hear again this message that leads to repentance. You see, in these five words, we find that the message that leads to repentance is a message of God. God is brought into the equation, first of all. But secondly, it's not just a message of God. It's a message of guilt. And yes, we have to go there. We have to address the question of sin, the question of judgment. It's there in the message. But not only is it a message of God that leads to repentance and a, question, a message of guilt, but it's a message of grace. See, even in these five short Hebrew words, there is the message of grace contained right at the core. And I'll tell you right now, that is what ultimately will bring about the transformation. But we can't get there yet. First, it's a message of God. Repentance. Transformation comes because the message begins with the question of God. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. Somehow, even though Jonah didn't say the name Yahweh, didn't even mention God, somehow the Ninevites know who Jonah is speaking for. Somehow they're aware that Jonah is speaking for God. And it leads them to the question of, is there truly a God? They believe God. They trust God. You see, when you bring God into the conversation, everything changes, doesn't it? You bring God into the conversation and everything begins to change. As an atheist, I thought that as I railed against God, I thought I was railing against just a concept or an ideology. I just thought I was, I was taking on the concept or idea of God as I railed against God. And then one day, a person came into my life and said, but hold on, Paul, what if God is for real? What if, just hypothetical, what if God, the God you hate so much, the God you reject so much, what if God is real, really real? It didn't convince me in that moment. I didn't pray the sinner's prayer that day. It put a rock in my shoe and I couldn't get it out. I struggled with this. What if God is real? What if there actually is a God in heaven? What does that mean about my life? Ultimately, that rock in my shoe undid me. I could not escape this question. What if there truly is a God in heaven? You see, you bring God into the conversation and everything begins to shift. I think of my conversion, which followed not many months later, kind of like Trumpkin the dwarf 
from the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you know Narnia. You know I've got a Narnia decal on the back of my truck, decal translation. Um, And I look at Prince Caspian, that story, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Trumpkin the dwarf is this, this, this wonderful swordsman, wonderful warrior, but he doesn't believe in Aslan. Aslan is the lion, the Jesus figure in Narnia. He just doesn't believe in Aslan. Aslan's not real. Lions aren't real. And at the end of Prince Caspian, this is, I read these words as a kid, and then I read these words after my conversion, and I was undone. This was, I was Trumpkin the dwarf. Bring God into the equation. Um, and now, said Aslan, in a much louder voice, with just a hint of a roar in it, and now, where is this little dwarf, this famous swordsman and archer who doesn't believe in lions? Come here, son of earth, come here. And the last word was no longer the hint of a roar, but almost the real thing. Now, the children who knew Aslan well enough to see that he liked the dwarf very much were not disturbed. But it was quite another thing for Trumpkin, who had never seen a lion before, let alone this lion. He did the only sensible thing he could have done. That is, instead of bolting, he tottered towards Aslan. You bring God into the conversation. You bring the message of, is there a God in heaven, into the conversation. And even the hardened skeptics begin to be undone. Look what happens with the Ninevites here. Verse 5, the reaction is, verse 5, fasting and putting on sackcloth. Verse 6, the king decides to add to that sitting in ashes. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. It's a picture of making a person low, demonstrating a person's poverty, demonstrating a person's need, demonstrating a person's humility. See, the response from the Ninevites when the question of God comes on the scene is an act of humility. They recognize that they are not running the universe. They're not the biggest, as big as Nineveh is, it is not the biggest thing around. There is a God. There is a God among us. And we must be humbled before him. As James chapter 4 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You see, the beginning of the question of repentance, that draw to repentance, begins with this question of God. The message that brings God into the equation. But also, not only is it the message of God, but it's the message of guilt. And this is where we we don't want to hear this, but we have to hear this. In those five short words of the prophet Jonah in verse 4, he says, Yet forty days, and this city of Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown is the language of judgment. It's the language of an end. It's the language of destruction. It's what was used, that same word of Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be overthrown, destroyed. Judgment. It implies that they are guilty for something and they don't need convincing. It's kind of like when we come home and our older dog of the two, Tiggy, has done something disgusting. And one of us in the family, usually our eight-year-old, will say, Tiggy, be ashamed. 
And man, does he show his shame. I mean, he just cowers there and shows his shame. He knows what he's done was wrong. He knows what he did was disgusting. And he's ashamed of it. He knows. And so do the people of Nineveh. They don't need any prompting. They don't need any extra direction. Look at what the king of Nineveh says in verse 8. He says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence of his hands. I mean, this question of judgment comes on the scene and they know immediately, yes, we are guilty. We have done things wrong. We are broken and we are in need. You see, we, we have the question before us, the two options in our lives. We can spend our whole lives warring against that sense of impending guilt. We can spend our lives trying to justify ourselves. Oh God, I'm, I'm a bit better than that person over there. And you know, there were some bad years, Lord, but there's been some good years. And when you look at the balance sheet, maybe, you know, I'm a little bit in the positive. We can spend our lives trying to convince ourselves, trying to convince God of that. Or we can come to the reality that I am broken, I am a sinner, and I am in need. I am a Ninevite. And I need God's repentance to come into my life. I need to recognize my need. Because you see, it would be wrong if we think that the Ninevites are the only ones in this book that need repentance. Jonah is a mess. As we continue through the story, especially next week, we will see just how much Jonah is himself in need of repentance. Chapter four, after the Lord relents of this disaster, what does Jonah do? Verse four, chapter four, verse one, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. He was angry that God showed mercy. This man has run from the Lord. This man was slow to pray. This man preaches his sermon, runs out of town and is gloriously waiting to watch the city burn up. This is the man that needs to repent. What Jonah shows us again and again is woe to us who think the repentance is for people out there. Repentance is needed right here. We are all in need of daily repentance, daily transformation, because daily, if we're honest, as Psalm 139, and we pray it, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my secret ways. See if there's any wicked way within me. And God's answer is always, yes, there is. We know we're guilty. We don't need to be convinced of it. I mean, in Matthew chapter 12, what is Jesus, as he identifies with Jonah's ministry, what does Jesus say about Nineveh? He says that the men of Nineveh will rise up on the day of judgment and will condemn this generation because they responded, they repented, there's that word repented, at the preaching of Jonah. But something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus points us to the fact that it's going to be surprising those who show up at the end who have truly repented before the Lord and those who think they have. We need to be a people open to repentance. As, as Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, which Jonah is uh, a real precursor for Moby Dick, he wrote these words. He said, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. We are all in need. You see, if repentance is to come into our lives, if we're to receive this call to repent, the message has to be of God humbling us, 
The message needs to be of guilt, showing us our brokenness and our need. But it also needs to be the message of grace or it won't work. See, if it just stays with the message of God and we feel humbled and it stays with the message of guilt and we feel bad about ourselves, welcome to every other worldview and religion out there. There is something greater than Jonah here. Are you ready for the gospel? Grace is what draws us into repentance. It is only grace that will bring a sinner to walk before a mighty God and say, forgive me and teach me a new way. See, many misread this story. Verse 10 is a bit confusing. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now, if you read that, you can begin to think, well, maybe, you know, God changed his mind, right? God changed his mind. God was bringing destruction and then look back, hey, they responded pretty well. They kind of earned a different response. And so God then changed his mind and it moved from destruction to mercy, destruction to grace. But that's not what this text is saying. It can't be what this text is saying. As St. Augustine said, for unlike human beings, God does not regret or repent of anything that he does. His view is absolutely fixed just as his foreknowledge is certain. But if the Bible did not use words like this, it couldn't communicate so plainly to all the kinds of people it wants to reach. What Augustine is saying is we use in scripture what we call anthropomorphisms. We take attributes of human beings and we give them to God because we're trying to explain the things of God. God changed his mind, God relented. But it doesn't really mean that's the character of God. For God does not change his mind. God's character is always the same. And Jonah knows it. God's character is always the same. And Jonah knows it. What's his great complaint going to be next week as we look at chapter 4? Verse 2. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew your character is always to have mercy. Again and again, we see God's unchanging character in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 33. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The heart of God is to turn a people back to himself. You could argue that Thomas Cranmer, when he wrote the prayer book, probably one of his greatest contributions, the proverbial mic drop moment of the prayer book, is when he wrote the prayer of humble access. We say it before we come to the table as we prepare to come to communion. And he's here declaring the unchanging nature of God. The grace of God that is unchanging at the root of his character. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs under your table. Do you hear the reference to God? Do you hear that humility? 
Do you hear the guilt in there and the recognition of our sin? But then it says this, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. This is a picture of transformation. This prayer is a picture of repentance. Change me, O God. Change me because of your grace. You see, it's one thing for us to believe that God is God. He's big, he's powerful, I'm nothing. It's another thing to believe that I'm guilty before God. Yes, I'm a worm. Yes, I'm broken. But it is a wholly different thing to meet a God who then says, yes, I am God and you are not. You are guilty and will die. And yet I have come in grace to save you. The gospel is right in these words. It's right in the words of Jonah. See those four words, those five words in Hebrew? Verse four, what's the threat? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown, yes, it can mean destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know what that word also means in scripture? It means overturned. It means transformed. It means changed. It's the same word that's used of Aaron's staff in Exodus chapter seven when it is changed from a staff into a snake. It's the same word from Exodus chapter seven when the Nile is changed, transformed into blood. It is the same word used in Esther chapter nine, verse 22, when because of this great salvation, their mourning is changed into dancing. What God is saying through Jonah, and I don't even know if Jonah recognized he was saying it, but it was the message from the Lord. What he's really saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be transformed. That is grace. God does not come to destroy, but to save. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but it might be saved through him. Something greater than Jonah is here. In Luke 15, our gospel text today, we're told that now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes Ninevites. This man welcomes broken people. This man doesn't condemn them. This man wants to change them and heal them. For I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, this is my interpretation, who think they need no repentance. God comes to redeem and to save us. Do you hear how grace draws us to repent? Grace alone can make us ready to say, yes, oh God, change me, change my heart, oh God. Grace alone. As we're coming towards Holy Week, it's a time of year where annually I watch the Passion of the Christ, and I know many of you do. And one of the most powerful moments, and I, I shared this many times before, and I'll keep sharing it, my most powerful moment in that whole book, that whole, that whole film, is when Jesus falls 
and he meets his mother. He's carrying the cross. He's carrying that instrument of death that will bear my sins and yours. And he falls, and his mother runs up to him, and brilliantly, using scripture, they take Jesus from Revelation 21, verse 5. He says to his mother, See, I go to make all things new. I go to change the world, is what he's saying. Not condemn the world. And that will draw a man or a woman who's broken to repent. Change my heart, O oh God. How does a life get transformed? How do you and I get transformed day after day? We need to repent. We need to turn around. We need to say we're sorry, but we need to desire a change. We need his message. The message of God humbling us. We need the message of guilt that, yes, condemns us, but then the message of grace, which truly draws us home. You come to transform me, not destroy me. It was a liability in my former profession when I discovered grace. I was a new Christian for several years, and I was just understanding the concept of grace. I was in a garden variety show, and one of my jobs was to sing a particular song every night. And as I was discovering grace, I couldn't get through it. It was, it, was a, it was a professional liability. The audience ultimately loved it. They said, oh, he's so passionate. I could not get through those words. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. See? And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour... I first believed. See, it's useless. No one paid to see that. <laughs> Make sure you put your tithes and offerings in before you leave. <laughs> what transforms a life? Grace. What will transform you today? Hear the gospel. Hear his call. Come and repent. 40 days and this community will be changed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.